0: So now you think, do I have as a writer, how you're talking about how different it is as a writer, what, how do I fill up the tank of my imagination? How do I fill up the well of the possibilities of just in a plot, what might be in a story? What does a good idea mean? How can I, how can I make it be a better idea? You know, and, and the days of panic of, will I ever have another good idea?
1: JCV Art Studio Season 5. My name is Joanna, and I'm the author of The Unraveling and Dealer's Child. Today, let me tell you a little bit about our guest. I feel like I've won the lottery with this this interview. All right. Hank Philippi Ryan is the USA Today best-selling author of 14 novels of suspense. She has also won multiple prestigious awards for her crime fiction, including Five Agathas, Five Anthonys, and the coveted Mary Higgins Clark Award. She's also on Air Investigative Reporter for Boston's WHDH-TV, and has won 37 Emmys, 14 Edward R. Murrow Awards, and dozens of other honors for her groundbreaking journalism. National book reviews have called Hank a master at crafting suspenseful mysteries and a superb and gifted storyteller. Hank's novels have been named Best Thrillers of the Year by Library Journal, New York Post, BookBub, PopSugar, Real Simple Magazines and others. Her current book is The House Guest*, a story of psychological manipulation that explores the dark heart of marriage and friendship. It's Gaslight Meets Thelma and Louise. The Library Journal Starred Review calls it binge-worthy. Yep, don't think you're going to be. Don't give yourself a time limit. Limit thinking. Oh, well, I'm only going to read for like 30 minutes. It won't work. Okay. If you haven't watched her TEDx talk on her website, I strongly urge listeners to check it out. Hank mm-hmm. hey, Philip Ryan, welcome to the art studio. It is an honor to interview you today.
0: Oh my goodness, thank you. It was so much fun to hear that introduction, and I feel like I won the lottery. So thank you.
1: Well let's talk about books. Let's talk about your book, The House Guests. um There was one night I was reading it and I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to give myself 30 minutes. And it's like an hour later, I'm checking the time. <laughs> it's like, okay.
0: <laughs> you know, that's what we dream about as writers, don't we? That um, we can create a world that someone is so immersed in and so compelled to find out what happens. That, they, that their best laid plans go away. I always say um, I want people to miss their stop on the subway yeah. because they just can't put it down. And, you know, I work for that. I work on that. That's really part of the craft of writing. And, I, and we can talk about this if you like, but I, I do think it comes from my years in television, 43 years as a reporter and learning how to tell a story Um, And I don't want you to turn the channel when my stories are on television. It's so easy, isn't it, these days to click, 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 you know, the minute, you know, the second, not the minute, but the second your attention wanders, you just click away and find something else. So our job as authors, my job certainly is uh, to keep you, to figure out a way to keep you focused on the story and compelled to keep reading and and that takes some work that takes some work
1: and i find even now as you mentioned it's like our attention can get so easily diverted you know and that's why i always appreciate people's time you know people who invest their time in what you're reading right yeah okay now each book is sort of a different writing experience and What was different when it came to writing The House Guest compared to writing your previous novel, Her Perfect Life?
0: Well, I think you're very wise because uh, I've written 15 novels. It's interesting. I just sent in one just working on my 15th. I'm working on the developmental edits right now, um, which is so much fun. And we should talk about editing. But I didn't, just quickly as a little background for your many listeners i i didn't start writing till i was 55 i didn't start writing fiction till i was 55 which is about a long time ago 17 years ago now i think um, and i had been writing television stories for 30 years before that so when i wrote my when i got the idea for my first book primetime and again this was 2000 whatever it was you somebody can do math Um, I just knew it was a good idea. I knew it was a good idea for a novel. Um, I'd never written a novel before. I'd only peripherally thought about writing a novel before in any any kind of specific sense. And I came home from my work at Channel 7 and I said to my husband, I've got a really great idea for a novel. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a thriller. And Jonathan says, great, honey. He says, do you know how to write a book? And I'm like, How hard can that be? You know, how hard can it be? I've read a million books. And I remember that so specifically now, because the key of that, and apropos of your question, the key of that in writing my first novel is that I was so infinitely clueless. I was so supremely naive about what it took to write a book that I thought it would be easier than it was. Um, And of course, it was very difficult, but it was so much fun along the way. I was just completely compelled to write this book. But I felt no pressure about it. Um, in writing the book that turned out to be primetime, I felt no pressure about it. You know, if it worked, it worked. If it didn't, it didn't. I didn't even know what worked was. Uh, it was all from the love of the story. So that became prime time, long story short. That became prime time, which won the Agatha for Best First Mystery. And that was the beginning of my career as as, a, as an author. So now book two, and this goes to your question, book two, that was a different deal. Now I had a contract and now I had a New York publisher saying, tick, 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 um, your book is due in a year. Mm-hmm. So that was a different experience. When you talk about what how it was different to write, it was a different experience to write book two from book one because it was no longer um, experimental. It was no longer my idea. It was somebody else's idea. It was a job. It was a profession. And that was a big question of, could I do that again? Could I write a book again? Totally different mindset altogether about that. So after book two, which was great, and I loved it, um, and it was a book sense notable book back when they had those, Then I got a contract for two more books. Then I had to write book three and four. Got to, not had to, but got the honor of writing books three and four. And that's when you sort of think, oh, I'm an author now. They're paying me to do this. And these books are due. And this is my job. And I have readers who are expecting me to be good. And at that point you know, you start realizing that as an author, you're raising the bar on yourself every time. And you want to be better. You want each book to be better. And so you, I challenge myself each time to make each book better. Plus, if you have any brains at all, you're learning along the way what your own foibles are and how to be a better writer. And, um, all you know, we're educating ourselves along the way uh, in so many ways. So then... Book three and four turned out to be book three and four of the Charlotte McNally series. All great. All great. And then I had another idea that was different from the primetime stories. Okay. Different sensibility, different tone, a bigger thriller, multiple points of view. I realized I could do multiple points of view. I hadn't ever thought about that before. So I realized I was I wanted to write a different kind of a book. Uh, a different series. And so there's another challenge, you know, book one of the Jane Ryland series, The Other Woman, which eventually won the Mary Higgins Clark Award. Now I set myself this new challenge. Could I write a bigger kind of a novel, a thriller, a, a thriller series? Could I do that? So the Jane Ryland books, and there are now five of them and with the sixth under contract, that was learning how to write multiple points of view. That was raising the bar on myself yet again. Then fast forwarding, I had an idea for a standalone. And I thought, okay, can I write a standalone? A lot different from writing a series. And we, can, we should talk about that because I think that's important. Um, so I started to write a standalone. Could I write a standalone? And that became, trust me which uh, did incredibly well, was my first standalone. And so then I started writing standalones. And what you need for a standalone is a great idea every time. And it needs to be, and now, you know, on, I think, um, trust me, was book, what, 10? So now you think, do I have, as a writer, how you're talking about how different it is, as a writer, what, how do I fill up the tank? of my imagination how do i fill up the well of the possibilities of just pl- in a plot what might be in a story how, what does a good idea mean how can i how can i make it be a better idea you know and and the days of panic of will i ever have another good idea what if i what if i never have another good idea that could happen you know you hear of people never having another good idea what if that happens to me yeah. Uh, and and my TV career, I think, uh, worked into that a little bit, and we can talk about that as well. I keep giving us ideas of things. About. <laughs> That's okay. So <laughs> no, every time I every time I write a book, it's a completely different experience because I have all the previous books before that. I'm trying to be better every time. I'm trying to make a more unique, more intriguing, more interesting, more twisty, more surprising, more compelling story every time. And I give a hundred. I give a hundred percent of my skill and uh, devotion to each book when I'm writing it. But then what constitutes 100%, you have to hope that grows. So what's in the 100% for book 12 is more than what was in book 11. And what's in the 100% for, as you were talking about, Her Perfect Life which I loved and was one of, I think, probably my most personal book. And that was what was different about Her Perfect Life is suddenly or gradually, whichever one it is, I realized that I had some really personal experiences that might be relevant to put into fiction, you know, to cover with the carapace of fiction, um, to allow some of the things I think about celebrity to come out Through a fictional character and have it be based a little bit um, on my life in a in a peripheral kind of way. So that's what I did differently in *Her Perfect Life*. That's a very different kind of book. Then *The House Guest*. You know, then that then I'm back to being *The House Guest*. I'm back to writing a story about something that I'm uh, familiar with but wasn't me. And so again, I'm ratcheting up the the my the challenge to myself in each book. So each book is harder to write than the one before, bottom line. Each book is harder to write than the one before and different to write than the one before because who I am as an author and as a person (laughs) is different from than it was the time before. Um, It just has to be or you're going to stagnate as an author. You're going to write the same book again and again and that would just be anathema to me to write the same book again and again and so uh how is how is her perfect life different from the house guest in every way it's different and it's in every way it's the same it's making it new it's making it better it's making a story with a beginning middle and an end that you can't put down and that and that's my total goal
1: excellent excellent because i think also as an author you're in it the the writer the author you're in it for the thrill ride as well like it I think it has to be thrilling for the writer and the author um I once read a quote where they where it was said who does the writer write for do you, are you a writer who first writes for yourself or do you write for your reader and for me I write, purely for myself at first, but then it's those rewrites where I'm thinking about the reader. Right.
0: Yes. Yes. When you were thinking, when I, when I heard you start saying that you write for yourself, I thought, oh, I don't think I'd do that. And then as you went on to say at the beginning, you write for yourself and then you write for your reader. I think that's exactly, I completely agree with that because as a, I mean, I write commercial fiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll just put this on the table. I want people to buy my books. I want you to buy the house Guest. you know, flat out. I will say that to you. Sue Grafton used to talk about that. You have to, uh, you have to own what you want. Mm-hmm. And I, so, and she would say, I want you to buy my books. I want, I want to be a New York times, a seller. And so I learned from her that we're allowed to say, I want you to buy my book. Uh, I want you to love, I want you to love my book. So there is an element so if I, wanted, if I were writing just for me
1: yeah.
0: um, and not wanting to sell the book, I think my books would probably be, well, either they'd be different than they are now or they wouldn't exist. Yeah. Because I'm writing it for entertainment of the reader. Yeah. So I want to write a story that I would love to read. That's what yeah. I'm writing. I yeah. can't wait to find out what happens. And that's the fun of it on the days that it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I know what to cut. You know, I know in that in the in the in the many edits afterwards, uh, afterward of writing the first draft, I know what to cut, and I am happy to cut. I'm delighted to cut. You know, they talk about oh, killing your darlings, and I think those words aren't my darlings. If they are clogging my pacing and slowing the um, the fun of the book, you know, out, out, out. I love to cut, and I do think that uh, the delete key is one of our most powerful weapons, because when you when you have the confidence and courage uh, and fear to take out everything that isn't the book, what's left is the book. It's you know you think, oh, this is what I meant to write. And so that it's really fulfilling to me to be able to cut. And what i the reason I'm cutting is to make it be a more compelling experience for the reader. I want you to forget that you're reading a book. Yeah, I exactly. want the movie in your mind to start going, and it's almost like they are not any words. I'm just, as an author, I just want to get out of the way and let you be in in this story. Um, and so that's writing for the readers. There's just no question about that. I I have a I teach at uh, a, a, a university, an adjunct professor at a university. Um, And I have a a student who is writing a novel that's really good. I mean, it's just really good. And the student um, wants to do some things in the book, doesn't want to do some things in the book that I'm suggesting that they do. And they said, You know, I'm not sure I want to write the kind of book that you want me to write. And I said, That's great. You know, you write whatever kind of book you want to write, and you just do it however you want to do. But if you want to sell it, here's what you need to do. And it's your call. It's your call. So I think for all of us, there's a difference between writing a book that we love, uh, and that nobody will ever see and writing a book that we love that everybody else will love as well. Okay.
1: Good, good, great advice. Great advice. So, okay. You, you mentioned it stand alone, <laughs> um, for my own, I'm going to be. I'm. I'm asking you this for my own personal reasons because I'm contemplating a standalone. Your standalone, trust me. So, can you talk to me about that experience of writing a standalone?
0: Yes, and I and I profoundly learned the difference between how it is to write a standalone and how it is to write a series novel. Um, Of course, people are, can you hear that? People are calling me during our podcast and there's no way for me to unplug the phone. I turned it all the way down, so forgive me. Um, The difference between a series and a standalone is so compelling and uh, so important to understand. In a series, it's a series of adventures of a person, of a character you love. Mm -hmm. And you're following this, you're seeing what's happening with Jane Ryland this time. What adventures will she go on as a reporter? And you have your characters, you have the character's world, you have one part of their circle of friends. Of course, you're gonna bring in new people, in every uh, episode of the series but and some may stay and some may may go but your core group is essentially the same the main character and somebody who's important to them and the people in their in their close world and the people in their wider world and the city where they live and the job that they have and the goal that they have some personal goal that they have and then the specific goal of each book the story that they're that they're following the mystery in my case that they're solving um and each and each each novel in a series has a beginning, middle, and an end for that book. Yeah. All the, the mystery is solved, but there are some personal things that are continuing through the arc of however long the series goes on. But the the, the challenge for an author in a series is that the stakes of the book cannot be. The mortality of the main character,
1: mm-hmm.
0: because the main character is not going to die, no matter what dire circumstances you put them in. The reader knows it's a series. There's book three, so she's not going to die in book two, and so the reader knows that, and the author knows that. So no matter what you do, th- their death is is not going to be the is not going to be the result. So the the challenge for a writer writing a series is that the stakes have to be high for someone else in the book and that has to matter and there has to be a reason that the reader comes back to see what what's jane Royland working on now and whose life is she going to save or whose life is she going to change and how is it going to change her life going forward so it's a challenge right isn't it for a series author to um make it uh not sort of episodic like you know like watching perry mason Um, the old, the old good Perry Mason, which we all loved, but it's got to feel bigger than that because it's got to be about the main character, but there does have to be a separate story that has a conclusion, a satisfying conclusion, but Perry Mason is not going to die and everybody, and every, and, and everybody knew that. Remember how bizarre it was that time I'm showing my age here. The one show that Perry Mason where he lost the case. Do you remember that? And that was so shocking. And they were on to something in that, because if they had just gone on to say, maybe Perry will lose from time to time, that might have been more interesting, but not back in the day. But, but, in a digression, but (laughs) in, in a standalone, in a standalone, a standalone is the only time you're going to meet those characters. And a standalone is the most important thing that ever happened in those characters' lives, in the main character who you choose, whoever the protagonist is, in the antagonist's life, and all the people around them, this is the most chilling, life-changing, momentous thing that ever happened to them. And you as the author are saying to the reader, I am telling you this amazing story. This is a, an amazing story. Listen to this. But you have so much power in writing a standalone, and I learned this as your question was asking. Um, in writing, trust me, you have so much power in writing in writing a standalone because anything can happen. Anything can happen. Anybody can be good. Anybody can be bad. Anybody can be lying. Anybody can be guilty. Anybody can start out seeming like a good guy and turn out to about be a bad guy. Anybody can start out seeming like a villain and turn out to be a hero. It's all in the author's hands. And in a standalone, anybody can die. Anybody can die. And the reader knows that. So they go in with, with no expectations about what's going to happen because in a standalone, anything can happen. And that gives you uh, as an author, us as authors, a huge amount of power and a huge amount of range. I mean, I don't want to be in, do any spoilers, but everybody knows this. Remember in Game of Thrones, when, when, when one of the people who seems to be a main character is just killed. And I'm like, you can't do that. You kill the person. And I think about George R.R. Martin all the time when I'm writing, because that was a brave thing to do, a brave thing to do, because readers might've been upset about it. They were certainly surprised. So but that's the power of a standalone. You, you, can, you can say to your reader, watch what I'm going to do now, and you will never guess. Because, Joanna, our readers are smart. They're, they're, they're reading along and guessing along with what we're, we're writing. I can't help but do it when I read somebody else's book. I try to figure out what's going to happen. Yeah. So in a standalone, especially, readers are going to try to figure out what happens. And so that makes the author have to stay one step ahead of them in writing the book, maybe two steps, maybe three steps ahead of them. And that's part of the fun for me too. So each, each kind of a book, a series um, and a standalone is, has its own difficulties and its own powers, but they certainly are, you know, in a standalone, you are not holding anything back because you will never, you will never hear from these characters again. So everything you need to know about the characters in this compelling and brilliant story will be told in the book, they'll have a life after. They have a life before the novel. That's clear in the book, and they some of them will have a life after the novel, and we can predict what that is, but we won't know. So it 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 makes it all the more necessary for in writing a in writing a uh, standalone to have the ending be completely satisfying, unambiguous, unambiguous
1: and satisfying. That's cool. So <laughs> I rub my hands together. That's cool. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad you suggested that question. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, in the house guest, I know you you had mentioned about the reader is smart, and I know I was going back and forth. Like when I was reading it in the beginning, I was thinking, okay, do we trust Alicia? Do we trust Bree? You And I'm thinking, okay, what is Brie really up to here? All right. So thinking about your characters, Alicia and Brie, did either of these characters come to you fully formed? Or as you're writing, you had mentioned developmental ed- edits. Or did you discover more and more about these characters?
0: I never know about the characters when I start. I I never know. I mean, I was talking to somebody yesterday who, some fabulous author who I wish I could remember who was, who was saying that they did these gorgeous character sketches of each character before they started writing the novel. Um, You know, with with astrological signs and childhood dreams and all these kinds of things. Um, And I lusted after that. I wish I knew that. And I just don't know that. Those, but Sue Grafton used to say, bringing up Sue again, that- uh, Kinsey Malone Revealed herself to Sue as Sue was writing about her, and I think I know that that's what happens to me along the way. I, you know, is Alyssa good? Is Bree good? I didn't know when I started. I just didn't know. I have no outline. I have no idea what's going to happen next. You know, the only thing that gets me to the computer every day is I think, oh, I can't wait to find out what happens next. And the only thing that I, the only way I can find that out is by writing what happens next, and that's very exciting to me. Usually some days it's painful, but usually usually it's very exciting. So your, um, your uncertainty about who was good and who was bad, I am with you on that, sister. I had no idea. And it changed as I wrote, as I learned more about each woman, uh, and as I learned more about what their motivations were and what they really were doing. I mean, obviously everybody, it's a, it's a novel of suspense, you know, it's a cat and mouse thriller seen through the eyes of, of Alyssa McAllen. So we only see what she sees. So we only know what she knows. Um, But every, all the other characters, if they're hiding something, we're never going to know that until Alyssa figures it out. So I figured it out with her and I figured out who she was, With her, Um, and you were talking about the developmental edits. So what happens is, I'm writing the novel, and I'm seeing the story evolve, and I'm seeing the characters develop, and I'm seeing who what's want and how who wants what and how far they'll go to get it, and what will happen if they don't get it. And as the story evolves, I begin to learn more about the characters, and then about seven eighths of the way through, uh, if I'm lucky, about seven eighths of the way through, uh, I'll have a moment where I'll think oh, oh yeah, that's what, this is what that's about. This is what that's about. And somehow I can see the puzzle that I've just, I've had individual pieces that I'm putting in this puzzle and I don't know what the puzzle picture is. And about seven eighths of the way through, knock on wood, I begin to see the picture and I think, okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. And then I go, then I go toward the ending. And at some moment I see at some moment after some anxiety and fear, I I realize what the ending has to be, what the ending has to be. Not what it might be or not all the things that it possibly could be, but what the ending has to be, what it is, what the ending is. There is an ending. I just have to find it. I have to dig for that, sort of excavate it. Um, And then I go back after I'm finished with that first draft, really, really rough first draft, that looking for in search of the story first draft. Then I go back knowing the whole picture ish and go back and make the people be more that okay you see what I mean so yeah. I allow the first draft uh I mean sometimes in a first draft I'll say this is terrible this is unbelievably terrible sometimes I say to myself this is the worst sentence that anybody has ever written in the history of the universe and then I say yep, yeah, it sure is it's pretty bad Now, just go ahead and write another bad sentence. I can't let it stop me. I just say, sister, you're terrible today. And I just keep going. And I think the key is you you just keep going. And then later, you go back and you realize a couple things. One, A, it wasn't so bad. It wasn't as bad as you thought it was. And B, you can always fix it. You can always fix it. So I'm pretty brave about just persevering. I just advance the story because all I want to do is get to the end of the first draft. So I, so I know what I'm writing and I know who people are. Then, as I said, I go back and polish and tweak and burnish and make it look like I always knew that Mm -hmm. about about the person, but I, I didn't always know it. I'm finding out as a, as a writer, I'm finding it out, um, along the way. And then I make, I try knock on wood to make it feel like it was always that way.
1: Okay. So now you're a pantser, correct?
0: Correct. Big pen. I lust for. I lust for an outline. I would love an outline. I know my editor always says, "Can you just send me an outline of your novel?" And I say, "No." And finally, after all these all these years, she's given up asking. But I have said to her, "How do I know what happens until it happens?" And it doesn't happen until I write it. I can't predict what might happen I mean a long time ago I wrote an outline for one, one of my books Drive Time my fourth novel and I just made it up I just made it up and I sent it in and I'm like here here's an outline and they're like great and then I the book wasn't anything like that and nobody ever said a word about it
1: so <laughs> I love that story so okay because I had pants and there have been times when I have you know, I'll do my writing in the morning. And there have been times when I have been stuck and I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm doing the edits, I'm editing, I'm not editing, but I'm doing my rewrites and I'm taking my dogs and we're going for walks. And that's where in my, you know, it's perfect. And um, those little paws, those mini schnauzers have seen lots of pavement and (laughs) they're, and I'm doing the, what if, okay, your heroine's here. What if she moves here? What if she goes there just to try to work out this plot? Have you ever found yourself at a point where you're just like, okay, how is my character going to get out of this? Bailey. Really? <laughs>
0: <laughs> really? I You know, when I have those moments of, ooh, I'm not sure what happens next. Um, which is not too often, but enough to be distressing when it does happen. Usually, I know the next thing. I mean, I'm, I don't, I don't outline, but and it's not written down. But usually, I know the next thing. Or sometimes my brain will go, oh, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this, like four things. Yeah. But when I don't know, I ask myself it? What, what does my character want here? What does what is she trying to do here? What is her goal here? And I and I have a, a method that you that I sometimes use, sort of five steps of when I'm stuck. Well, it's not really stuck as much as it is ready.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> ready. Um, I ask myself, what does a character want? And then and why? and then she i'll just say she and then she has to decide what she's going to do to get that thing so then we know her we know her her goal and we know her motivation and we know her planning and i think this is important we know what goes through her mind about deciding what to do and in that decision making process we can reveal Um, Her psychology, you know, is she doing the right thing, the selfish thing, uh, you know, a a vindictive thing, a revengeful thing, a loving thing? Why does she do what? You know, what are what's her decision making process? Uh, And in in that in that process, we can get setting right? We can get, you know, we can get other people. We can, you know, her decision-making process is going to be altered because it's snowing. Her decision-making process is going to be altered because somebody is about to arrive. So there are going to be factors that go into this. So she wants something, She because it, if she doesn't get it, she's going to fail and that would be terrible. And then here are the possibilities of things that she might do based on where she is and where when it is. And then she does it. So now you have action. Now the story is moving forward. She does the thing that she's decided. And then there's an obstacle. Then for some reason, it doesn't work. And oh no, the thing, the bad thing has happened. You know, early in the book, not a terrible thing. Later in the book, a really terrible thing. So now she's faced with this obstacle to want something else. She has to figure out what to do. And then she hits another obstacle. So if you do that if you do that, and it's not a formula, but it's a rhythm of how we live. Mm-hmm. I want something. Here's why. I'm um, here's what I wonder. What I should do. Ooh, that's what I'm going to do. Yes, I'm going to do that. I do that, and then somebody stops me. And your story has moved ahead. At that point, your story has moved ahead when you figure out not what if, but what if. What does she want? Yeah. And then and why? And then what will happen? And you you will fly through it. You will fly through it. It's all because because a book. A a story is something that happens because of something, because of something. So, what is the domino that falls? What is the domino that falls that changes that takes your character out of disequilibrium? And what she wants to do, and I'm sorry to keep using she, what she what she wants to do is get her life back, get her equilibrium back. So, what is she going to do to do that? And that's what it's all about, getting your equilibrium back. So, something goes wrong. She needs to fix that she has to she has to make it work she decides what to do we understand who she is because of her decision she does the thing the thing doesn't work because if it did work then there wouldn't be a book and then she goes on and 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 does it again and that has really helped does that make any sense oh, wait, really-
1: yeah because i'm just thinking in the house guest the fbi ring the doorbell <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. What are you going to do? How are you going to deal with that? shes I mean, we start out with Alyssa McAllen, who's in a huge state of disequ- equilibrium, right? Because her husband of eight years has walked out on her inexplicably. She's shocked. She's devastated. She's sad. She's baffled. She's lonely. And it seems like he's trying to ruin her life. And why? And we begin with her trying to figure out what to do for about two paragraphs. And then someone walks in, you know, guy walks into a bar, but it's not a guy walks into a bar and her life changes on like page two, again, on page two, what is she going to do? And how is she going to decide what to do and what she decides? And this isn't giving anything away, but in chapter one, she decides that possibly someone else's disaster is worse than hers. And she changes from focusing in a kind of in a kind of self-pitying way on herself. She decides, you know, I'm fine, I'll be fine, I'm going to help someone else. And we like her.
1: Yeah.
0: But we're smart readers and we're also thinking, who is this other person who comes in who needs help and what's really going on here? But Alyssa makes her decision, and this is very carefully decided, makes her decision out of out of grief out of vulnerability, out of loneliness. I mean, how many of us have been heartbroken? All of us have. And what kinds of decisions do we make when we're heartbroken? And so she starts in severe disequilibrium. She starts in severe disequilibrium. uh, And the book is about getting her out of that, her getting herself out of that.
1: Yeah, and you see the change. You see the change of Alyssa when you get to the end. Like you definitely see that arc.
0: I'm nodding you all. I'm nodding. with
1: Yes.
0: And that's what the book is about. Empowerment is about finding out who you really are. I mean, it's a murder mystery. It's a thriller. It's a cat and mouse game where there are high stakes and big money and a lot of motivation and a lot of secrets. Um, But in the end, you know, thematically, which we all have to have, you know, we have to Have a theme, whether we discover it at the end or at the beginning, whether we know it all along. I didn't figure that out till the very end. Um, We have to have a theme that makes the book be bigger. It's not just a story of this woman who gets dumped. It's a bigger, um, I'm hoping, a little bit inspirational story about how we can get our lives back from disaster.
1: Okay, yeah. So... (laughs) Two things kind of twigged for me. First, when when you said that word empowerment, first happy International Women's Day to you. That's today. And to you and to thank you for all you do. And Alyssa and Bree, they are strong characters, strong women, and you know, even in the beginning, you know, it is mentioned. You know, gaslighting meets Thelma and Louise. And I was wondering, when you were writing The House Guest, did it, did you, you knew from the beginning Alyssa was going to be telling this story because they're both, you know, they're both strong women and um, it's not a dual narrative, but I, I was just wondering about that, whether it went back and forth at all. When, when, did you ever have a time when you thought, hmm, I wonder if, this will be Bree's story, or was it always Alyssa's story?
0: It was always Alyssa's story. It was always Alyssa's story. And I'll tell you, I mean, sort of inside baseball more than anybody would ever want to know about this book. But I, one of the challenges that I set myself in this book was could I make it be from one person's point of view? Okay. Um, Her perfect life is from three points of view. Um, My other books, uh, the murder list from three points of view. And it, and it, I was I sort of set myself the challenge of could I keep up the fast pace of my novels the propulsive pace of my novels cross, knock on wood um, with one person's point of view because that's very difficult um, because you can only know what the person knows you can only see what the person sees you can only be where the person is um, and only understand what the person understands and only want only know what they really want what their you know what their deep motives are um, and so, you know, they, every they everything that happens in the story outside of their world, they have to find out about some way. And that's a juggle. That's a really hard thing to do. But that's why I decided to make it to be from Alyssa's point of view. Somebody asked me once whether I, you know, why didn't I write it from Bree's point of view? And I, you know, I thought, well, no. I mean, that would be a, t- it would be a completely different story. You, you just so profoundly different story. Not a bad not a bad story, but not this one. You know, not not this story, certainly. So I decided to tell the story of Alyssa McCallan, happily married for eight years, chosen to be someone's wife, chosen to make their life the their her husband's life work, you know, ma- someone who came from a hard scrabble background, who married into money for love. You know, we make it clear she's not a gold digger, but she appreciates privilege. She appreciates you know that there are fresh flowers in the house all the time, and that she can essentially do whatever she wants to do. And she loves her husband, and he loved her. You know, and and what happened? What happened? And that's who the story is about, and the people who come into Alyssa's life, and the people who come into her husband's life, um, and how that affects her. You know, it's about you know I, uh, one of the one of the places that the story came from was from a person who I knew many years ago, who uh, was happily married uh, to a a cool guy. And she was a cool woman with a, and they both had professional, responsible, big deal jobs. And every morning she would go off to work to her professional, big deal, responsible job um, and say, you know, good night, honey. I'll see you tomorrow. I'll see you later tonight. I'll see you for dinner. And he would say the same thing. Have a good day at the office. I'll see you later. And you know they'd come home and have dinner together. And after some years, uh, the FBI showed up at the door and turned out that her husband had never gone to work one day. He had never gone to any office. He wasn't really an accountant or he wasn't really a financier or whatever it was that he had said he was. It was all pretend. It was all made up. And he had stayed home every day doing really illegal, nefarious things hideous things on the computer, so hideous and so nefarious that the, that the feds came and arrested him and charged him and convicted him. Uh, and the point of it was that stuck in my brain for all these years. I mean, it was years ago. This thing that stuck in my brain for all these years was she had no idea. Yeah. She just didn't know. And, you know, we have heard stories about, let's we'll just say men who are criminals, white collar criminals or, or um, violent criminals and their families and loved ones say, oh, he seemed like such a nice person, you know, what a quiet guy. I never would have known how long we heard that. And how often do we say, oh, come on, you're not paying attention. You didn't know your husband was a serial killer. Come on. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you know, you're not really noticing things, uh, but she, well, I, this woman was smart and savvy and competent and worldly and wise. And she just didn't know. And I know she didn't know. And that was one of the things um that I wove that that was the one tiny bit of reality that I wove into the house guest is that could someone, you know, how do you how much do you really know about that person who's sharing the pillows with you at night? How much do you really know about the person you love? And could they be keeping a devastating secret from you? Would you know you think you would know? But I don't know. Would you know? And what if what about you? Could you keep a really dark secret? from someone who you think you love, or they love you, could you? I mean, and then we think, oh, yeah, I could do I could do that. I guess I could do that. And, you, and you, then you think, well, if you could do that, they could probably do that, or think they could. And so that trust, you know, so my books are about justice and trust, and loyalty and, you know, truth. They're about, I mean, I don't mean to sound woo-woo about it, but all of my books are about truth. How do we know the truth? and what is the truth and how often is truth just created and all of that i mean again it's a cat and mouse thriller the house guest and went into a second printing after 6 days which was quite astonishing so it, you know it's a it's an airplane book it's a, you know it's like well, i want you to keep turning the pages as fast as you can but underneath all that is a story uh about as you say is about empowerment and about truth and about justice and how we can keep secrets from each other and, and how that happens and how devastating that can be.
1: Okay. I'm writing a note here. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned truth. And in the beginning, you had also mentioned your work about being an investigative reporter. And I asked a few authors. I I knew I kept it very quiet because I was so wanting this. I was so excited about this interview So this combines with a question another author asked forwarded to me. So Susan Jane Wright, her question was, how much of your work as an investigative reporter influenced your writing? And you had mentioned that earlier when we started. And I'm just, as I'm listening to you, you're mentioning about truth in your books. So, yeah.
0: (laughs) Susan, thank you. I, um, I could not be the author that I am today however that is without having had all those years of experience as an investigative reporter. I mean it's storytelling. So the my it's really there's three answers to that very very quickly. One is the easiest one is my books are not my television investigations made into fiction. I suppose I could do that, but it isn't interesting to me to do that. So I take a little bit from here and a little bit from there and a little bit from here and then a lot of imagination and sort of make like a Rubik's cube, sort of and twist the puzzle pieces, you know, little magpie pieces from various places. So sure, you know, I did a story about, I've done so many stories about the housing crisis in Massachusetts years ago. And I began to wonder... You know, what's going on in those empty foreclosed houses? What has the keys and the utilities are on? And could they be used for something? Now, that's not my new story. My new story was about the failing housing market and, the, and, the, and some unfair foreclosures. But as a result of that, as a result of thinking about that, I got another idea for yeah. a story. Um, my book, The Wrong Girl, uh, someone had called me to say that... Um, An adoption agency had reunited uh, a daughter with who they thought was her birth mother, but it was the wrong match. And she said to me on the phone, Can you believe it, Hank? They sent that woman the wrong girl. And I thought, Ding, ding, thank you. That's that's a great novel. I I didn't even do a story about it, it was ridiculous. Um, clerical error that didn't result in any problems. And there were no more of them. And it wasn't a big scandal. It wasn't anything, but it sure was a good book. Um, so, you know, I've covered murders and all, many murder trials. And I have interviewed murder uh, suspects and had people confess to murder and have People who are convicted of murder insist that they didn't do it. I know how people are when they lie. You know, I've been in places in the airport that, you know, you've never been. And I, I've met people that, you know, are pretty interesting and been in some scary situations. You know, I've wired myself with hidden cameras and confronted corrupt politicians and gone undercover and in disguise. So it would be silly not to use the not only the experiences, but the emotion of those experiences and the stress of being a reporter, which is immense. All that goes into the books, but they're not my television stories made into fiction. The other thing that I learned from being a reporter is that uh, a good story has a beginning, middle, and an end. Yeah, It has a character who you care about, a problem that needs to be solved. You follow leads and track down clues. You want the good guys to win and the bad guys to get what's coming to them. And in the end, you want some, you want to find the truth. You want some justice and you want to change the world and you learn. And so that's key, you know, whether it's an investigative story or whether it's fiction, that's the same thing, you know, that's the same rhythm. And as I said earlier, I don't want you to turn the channel when my television story is on. So that rhythm, that pacing, that, you know, that the sense of, you know, I may shoot 20 hours of video and take one minute from it, just the one gem of what somebody says. And so just like writing a novel that, you know, my books turn out to be 125,000 words in the first draft, and I know they can only be 95,000 words. So I learn what's important and what's entertaining and what's unique and what's new and what's compelling. I, that's, you know, that that's definitely from television. And the other thing from television an uh, uh, answer to Susan Jane Wright's question, which is like the, this, is the world's longest answer. <laughs> is, um, in television, you gotta make your deadline. I mean, it, if I said to my news director, "Can I be on the six o'clock news at ten after six? I'm just not really feeling it. The news hasn't come. How long would I last?" You know. So there are days you learn in television that you just do the best you can. You just write the best you can because no matter what you do you cannot it's called missing your slot you cannot miss your slot on the show if you're on at 602 you're on at 602 you better be there your 602 you know 602 30 isn't gonna happen you know you're late and so you just at sometimes I just think oh some days I I learned that I can just think okay this is as good as you know I'm, I'm typing here this is as good as it's going to get today and tomorrow will be better uh, and you and you just and you just move on I also learned from television uh how promotion works, how public speaking. I learned about writing headlines, you know, all those kinds of things that we do every day now as authors, you know, I've been doing that, you know, now for 43 years as a reporter. So there could not be any better, any better uh, training for being a, a thriller writer than to be a reporter.
1: That's a great answer. Great answer. Thank you.
0: I also think, and this is my final thing about this. You're making me, you're, you're, this is so thought provoking, your questions. But I also think that, you know, we were talking about being a pantser. Yeah. And as a reporter looking for the truth, I don't know what the story will be as I'm working on it. I don't know the ending, right? Because I'm, it's a news story, it's new. So I'm out in search of the story. And that's what I did every day as a reporter. I was out in search of the story. And so, I know what a story is. I know what it feels like. I, you know, I know what it's like to say, ah, oh, that's a good story. You know, the highest, like, oh, that's a good story. And you get, you learn this sort of almost blink reflex about that's a good story. That's not a good story. That's a good story. That's not a good story. So it, so I'm not afraid of not knowing the ending uh, to my fiction because I've never known the ending to my news stories either until I get there. So that's my, that's my constant state of being is not knowing and being in search of the story and knowing it when I see it and not afraid that I, and I'm not afraid that I won't get there. I know what that is. I know what a story is. I know what a book is. Um, and that's where I get my confidence.
1: That's another gotcha. great answer. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I want to make sure I get my favorite question in here. Fun question. Actually, there are two. We're going to take it. Two really fun questions, okay? Oh, dude, I'm scared now. Okay. Gin or vodka martini?
0: Oh, my golly. Now, this is a big... Is this a random question that you always ask? Because this is a very serious question, and I can give it's you... It's
1: just for you. <laughs> oh, it's just for me. Okay. Um, Your character in that opening scene, right? Like, I know I like my martinis. I have gin, you know, and yeah.
0: Well, I used to love gin martinis, and, I, and it was... You know, I could have one, you know, one martini. There's, there's nothing, there's no second martini and you know, that nothing good can happen from that. <laughs> one martini, the first sip of a great martini is amazing. And I used to have gin with no vermouth, just gin and olives. Okay. Then I changed to just gin and lemon, zest. Then suddenly, and this is more than you ever needed to know, suddenly I started getting headaches from the gin.
1: Oh, okay.
0: And so I thought, okay. So I switched to vodka and I now I have, Um, then I thought, well, maybe this is too strong. You know, I started thinking, "Mm, you know, a vodka martini, that's a lot of alcohol. Maybe I don't really need that. So I stopped drinking them altogether. And then the other day, someone said, have you tried Dingle's gin? It's Irish gin called Dingle's. And I said, oh, you know, sure. I'll have a sip. You can't, can't go wrong with a sip. Yeah. And oh my golly, it was really good. <laughs> so okay. I, I, I don't know. I may be back to trying that again. Could happen. Okay, I can't believe you asked me about martinis.
1: That's the funniest thing. Well, <laughs> I have one more fun question. You were sitting in an infinity pool floating on an orange plastic raft and Alicia, Alyssa in her black tank suit black floppy hat, and Jackie O sunglasses floats over to you. What would Alyssa say to you in that moment? And what would be your response?
0: You know what I hope? I hope she would say thank you. And I hope that my response would be my complete pleasure.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. All right. Hank, this has been... Fabulous.
0: Well, you know what? Also, I might say, I might say, okay. <laughs> I might say to her now. I'm really thinking about this. I might say to her, "My complete pleasure." And I always knew you had it in you. Perfect.
1: Perfect. Thank Hank. Thank you. This has been a real pleasure, and I I don't want to keep you. You are on a uh, it looks like a whirlwind book tour. Um, just different signings everywhere, and it's been so neat to see just all the different posts, I follow you on Instagram, of your readers wearing the black floppy hat and the Jackie O sunglasses. That that must feel so gratifying when you see that.
0: I just laugh every time. People are so clever and so imaginative. And if you look at the cover of the house guest, you'll see the main character in those Jackie O sunglasses and red lipstick and that black floppy hat. Um, and when you pop on sunglasses and a hat and red lipstick and give yourself a little knowing expression, it's really funny. And so many people, men even, have done it, dressed up as as the main character of the house guest. And I wonder if that's Brie or Alyssa on the cover. There's an l- ongoing argument about that. And I, I have. have,
1: I have I've, I've interrupted you, but I have been wondering that exact question. <laughs> oh, I wish I knew. Because... Okay. I I guess I would say I am on team Brie. That's who I think it is. Cause I'm looking at her hair and I'm like, Hmm, and I'm looking at the poster on the
0: back of your door here during this interview. Right. So anyways, and she does have a look, she does have a look of a little bit of wanting something. There's an ulterior motive on, you know, in that little twist of her lips. You'll have to look at it. You all the cover of the house guest. I hope that draws you right
1: in. And also please people check out we didn't even, we didn't get a chance to even talk about it. Your Hank, your TEDx talk on your website. It's great. Um, Lots to learn from. I was, you know, giggling. It's humorous. It's thought provoking. Thank you for this. Thank you for this interview.
0: Oh, I loved it. Thank you. I love your questions and everyone's questions. It's been, the time went by just whoosh. So thank you for that.